Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have back with me Jack Lloyd, who is a libertarian voluntarist who has promoted the liberty message for over 15 years, although I guess we should say over 16 years now because Jack was on last year on this show and I just copied my notes. He has a BS in public relations, business concentration, and a Juris Doctor. He's worked as a juvenile defense attorney, a government school teacher, and now he works as a producer making music, comic books, educational videos, and memes, really important, for a variety of outlets from the philosopher to the voluntarist comic book series. And he's on today to talk about his new book, A Vision for a Libertarian Future. Jack, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Doug. I really appreciate that great and thorough introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably pulled it from like your website or the back of one of your books. And yeah, I have to uh, update it next time you come on the show. So it says 17 years or whatever number it is. <laughs> You've actually, it was actually only, well, I guess it's almost a year, 40 or so episodes ago that you were on. So it wasn't that long ago that we had a conversation about libertarianism and what does it mean to be a voluntarist. So for listeners, they can go back and listen to the conversation we had about what is voluntarism. So what is this latest book about? It's called A Vision for a Libertarian Future. It's not difficult to read. In fact, I read it in about a day, day and a half because I had other things going on, but I could have just sat down and read it in one sitting if I really needed to. So what's the book about and who are you aiming this for? Thanks. So, yes. Yeah, so my next book here, my nonfiction line, A Vision for a Libertarian Future, is kind of putting together the big picture ideas about what it means to meaningfully move an incrementalism toward a free market and toward a kind of libertarian society. And the reason why I wanted to put this together is because I hadn't really seen it done well in other places where it's kind of a succinct primer on all the big picture questions, right? Like who will build the roads and what about the military and what do we do about social security and yeah. what about all the government lands and things like that. So I wanted to have kind of a one-stop shop where someone could come, as you just said, sit down and on a weekend read through this and kind of get a sense of what libertarians are working toward in a unified way. And so I wanted to have this be kind of a roadmap of incrementalism for people to get behind. And that could be for whether you're brand new or whether you're very seasoned. It's a way to get people really laser focused on what the outcome could be of a unified advocacy in all arenas of state thinking. And I don't cover every single possible situation, but I do cover kind of the biggest ones, the ones that really have an impact on our lives and majorly do in our wallets in a way that helps people put it together and get kind of a roadmap there. Yeah. You use the word incrementalism there, and that's probably a trigger word for some libertarians. Why don't you just want to burn the whole system down? <laughs> well, I mean, part of that aspect, I think when it comes to burning the system down, I think the government does that pretty well on its own already. <laughs> so, the, you know, <laughs> with the government policies, they kind of already have a very self-destructive end. So I'm less interested in that because the government continues as they've been doing. We will see an end in the horizon as many governments have in the past and virtually all governments do in the end collapse because the spending is too great, the debt is too great, the inflation is too great. Yeah. So it's not really, for me, that matter. That's the inevitable end of government's expanding and empire building. So if we're going to stop that, 
we need to actually have some meaningful ways to curtail state power in a unified way that takes us away from that teetering edge of total mm-hmm. collapse. Yeah. What are some of the works that you know are out there that you probably have appreciated that the average person isn't going to sit down by the fire and read in an afternoon because it's either 800 pages or it's just a little dense? What are some of the influences that you've had in this, in writing this and having this vision for a libertarian future? Sure. So there's different things that I reference in my book for further reading, but just one small example could be like Walter Block's The Privatization of Roads and Highways. It's a narrow topic where he really dives into that in depth in almost a textbook form. So that's one example where if someone were to be like, okay, I want to go really deep and think about this on a broad scale, you could with his work, with Block's work. I would say that that's something that you can definitely think about if you're looking to do extensory and things like that. But I, I kind of pull from different sources, whether it's Block or Rothbard or different institutes like the Tax Foundation. I've drawn a bunch of different sources who put together some of these analyses and kind of research topics, and I kind of bring them together in an actual way. So you can really get quite the expanded gamut with what I've presented in here, because I do cover quite a few different outlets and not-for-profits and think tanks and authors in my book. Yeah. So anything that surprised you in your research? Because I can imagine that you sit down and you look up the data and be like, how can I use this to help make my case or even question, does this actually make my case? Is there anything that surprised you or like stood out to you? The thing that surprised the most that I didn't even cover at length in the history in my book, because my book is not really a history book, more of a, an action policy kind of book. It was the history of lotteries in America and how that was used even in the colonies for funding things like roads and infrastructure and bridges and things like that, and even buildings at Harvard. I didn't know that. That was never taught to me yeah. in any of my classes in school. I didn't know that the government originally had to rely on some types of voluntary ways to get funding for things. We hear about, I think, the continental dollars and the things that happened with that quite often. That's covered a lot in your typical eighth grade history or 10th grade history class. But few would ever say, oh, by the way, Jamestown, that colony, they used lottery to help fund that in part, or Harvard had buildings that they funded with lotteries, or they were building some roads and things like that with lotteries. And it's like, what? Mm. You know, that, that's crazy. Like, would you think that that far back they were thinking about how to do things non-coercively? And they had to because at the time they were already resisting the British rule and the taxes there. So the last thing you're going to want is to have more taxes right off the bat and this kind of oppressive control if your whole thing is, hey, the taxes in Britain are oppressive, right? Yeah, yeah. New boss, same as the old boss. (laughs) Right, exactly. They couldn't do that until after, you know, they got the constitution down and usurped the power there. But at the beginning, they couldn't do the revolution in contradiction to the principles that they were trying to espouse and say, hey, this is overbearing and this tea tax is oppressive. They had to think outside of taxation to get funded. They had to come up with ways. And that was things like lotteries and sometimes things with debt and whatnot. But they had to think outside of taxation to get funded. How do you feel about the fact that back then it was either inconceivable or it wasn't very popular to propose something along the lines of more taxes. In other words, nowadays we have a mentality in our culture and our society that taxation is just everywhere from the extreme justification of like, well, that's just the price we pay to live in a civilized society. And you and I would obviously disagree with that to people saying, well, yeah, I can't get rid of it. And people's attitudes toward taxation, toward the coercion of the state of the government 
is not as anti-government as you and I would like and is not as anti-imperialist or as anti-state as the early American culture was. When you think about that reality, what does that do in your mind for the prospects for liberty? Are you optimistic? Does it make you discouraged? Where are you? I mean, you're out there a lot. I mean, obviously, I see you on Facebook. You're very involved in the libertarian world and you're out there meeting a lot of people and promoting liberty. So where are you in your attitudes toward it, given what I just said? Yeah, I think that actually these days more than ever, it's a lot easier to get people on board with that. I think it is a common sentiment that taxes are going to things that people don't like or don't agree with. I think the Overton window on that discourse has been shifted. There is, of course, plenty of people who say, you know, but without taxes, we won't have X, Y, and Z of these things. But there's become a much healthier skepticism that I think didn't exist before. I think in the past especially in the past 50 or so years, people got to the point that like, yeah, you know, taxes are overall good. Now we're getting to the point where people are like, oh my gosh, they are so incredibly wasteful. They're sending it to all these people overseas. They're wasting it on all these different programs, these Mm -hmm. different welfare programs that are just totally crony. They're bailing out corporations and banks, right? I think there's definitely that popular sentiment. I think going from the Occupy Wall Street movement up to the state, the government's tried to collude with the media basically to shut that down, there has still been maintained that general skepticism of taxation and what it's being used for. So I think that that is definitely a healthy and needed predicate to actually getting change from people and getting them just a little bit further down the road. So I'm optimistic. I think that it's a little bit easier these days to reach people with this kind of message than it has been in the past, going back 20 or more years, when people just were kind of thinking, hey, you know, the taxes, they're good enough. Everything's going all right. It's, it's, it's helping to pave the roads. But now I think people are a little more disillusioned with that idea, yeah. looking especially at the debt, 31 plus trillion, how often they're raising the debt ceilings. People really kind of get now that the whole thing is kind of corrupt and on the yeah. brink of collapse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think sowing the seeds of skepticism and even darkly cynicism about what the state is doing is really helpful. I think the COVID era, even though we're not quite out of it per se, depending on how you look at it, was eye-opening for a lot of people who thought they could trust their state, their governors at the very least. But now they realize uh, a lot of people got it wrong. At least some people realize that. What is the role of entrepreneurship in your libertarian vision? You have a chapter on that. I'm drawn to the idea that entrepreneurship would play a critical role in whatever better future we would imagine for ourselves. How do you see things? Right. So my focus in my book about the entrepreneurship angle is specifically helping people recognize that a lot of the problems uh, that we have today are because entrepreneurs are hamstrung and the government prevents people from being able to come up with solutions and being able to meaningfully provide what people want and need. And so I talk about it from that perspective, just helping people to see the ways that the government kind of keeps people from actually applying innovation. One example that comes to mind is the government shutting down the FAA, I'm sorry, the FAA shutting down the Uber for planes. So in other (laughs) words, the government shut down the opportunity for people to have kind of this revolution in aerial ride sharing. And that's just one of many examples where the government is actively hampering production that would lead to people being able to get off the ground and start to think outside of even the roads. Literally in that case. (laughs) Right, literally. (laughs) And around the world right now, there's already other governments that are less restrictive that are piloting autonomous drones and they're looking at ways to actually have 
more forms of aerial taxis and ride sharing services. So yeah. meanwhile, here we're getting the worst of everything. We're having the government subsidize certain people and then shut down alternatives. And we're really missing out on the abundance of what would happen if we actually had a free market in those things. So when I talk about entrepreneurship, I especially focus it on that aspect that the problems created by state regulation and cronyism are going to be quickly fixed when people are actually able to meaningfully choose what options work for them and to be able to support that which gives them value and is actually sustainable. I obviously would strongly agree with that. I even prefaced my question with I would agree with that kind of vision for things. So let's talk about a couple of the particulars. And you start off spelling out a little bit of your vision. But the first thing that you want to overhaul is taxation because it is the root cause. Because if you can basically get rid of taxation, you can get done a lot of the other things in your vision. Talk about what that root cause is doing to us and why would that be your first place? I would have chosen things like end the occupation of our troops overseas and the Federal Reserve, which are things that you would agree with, I'm sure. But you started with taxation. So why and what is your incremental plan for that? Sure. So with taxes, that is such an important element of undoing the tyranny of the state because that's their lifeblood. The taxation makes the government unique from other forms of violence because they get your money, whether you like it or not you know, across the entire population. And so without that kind of mandatory automatic takings, the government really doesn't have this leverage over your life where they can just do whatever they want willy-nilly. And even if you don't like it, too bad, so sad, they're taking it out of your paycheck. So the root of taxation here, kind of striking at that, is going to have amazing ripple effects in terms of the government having to really cater to people's wants and needs and demands, because if people are not finding value in what the government is doing, then they're going to support alternatives. And so in my incrementalism, I talk in terms of a 10-year window, if we're winding down taxation. And I start with the income tax, as that cuts across quite a few people. And that savings that you'd have from not having to deal with all that paperwork and all that reporting would be absolutely enormous. In fact, the Tax Foundation notes that You're spending possibly upwards of a third of the year of your money just going to the government in taxes and then hours and hours of time dealing with that in terms of records keeping and reporting. The equivalent of, I think it's something like 3 million people working throughout the year having to actually do that type of paperwork all year long is the Mm -hmm. the amount of time it takes to do all that type of paperwork. So it's pretty enormous in terms of the size of the cost, both in direct cost of people's time and in the amount of their wallet. So of course, that doesn't end all of taxation that, you know, because there's many types of taxes, but that's a great start to begin with in moving toward a truly voluntarily supported government. I talk about how the taxes that would be upended after that would be the ones that are basically least tied to servicing, things like alcohol tax or dog license tax and stuff like that. And then at the end, the ones that are more tied to it, like the gas tax, where it's a little bit closer approximation to use of the roads. Mm -hmm. So basically, the incrementalism is the ability for the government to have time to adjust for the public to adjust. So there's still ability to keep things going. It's not total chaos as things are winding down. The other thing that comes to mind is the objection, well, wait, you're going to kill a lot of jobs by tax accountants. And at the same time, you and I probably would think, yeah, but that's going to create a lot of opportunity for people who are pretty good at 
doing. I mean, it's not a low wage labor, right? That's a skilled job that they could apply to more entrepreneurial and productive uses. So whatever opportunity costs that are not calculated in here's the cost to America for taxation is actually also going to be gained as well. Right. And people like that would just find a new work within a freer market. And most likely, if they want to do something that was closely aligned with what they were doing, they would probably do something in the realm of accounting, business accounting and things like that, if they wanted to have something that was a little bit closer to the style of work they'd be doing if they're actually doing finance and forms, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Hi, everyone. This is Jacob Daniel Winograd. If you're enjoying this podcast you may want to check out other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my podcast, The Biblical Anarchy Podcast, where we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man by instead seeking the kingdom of God, where we unpack what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing a variety of content you love, just like you're hearing on this episode right now. Okay, I'll let you get back to it. Then you can check out the Biblical Anarchy podcast. On to a slightly different topic because it's talking about federal acquisition of the property of Americans, which is federal asset holdings. I had no idea how massive it was. Yeah, (laughs) it's huge. It's People don't know. Federal government has a lot of stuff, to say the least. They really do. It's kind of incredible. And when you think about it, you're like, wait, what? They have... All that land, it's some like 640 million acres. And the Department of Defense itself has some 640-ish thousand assets, which are like buildings, utilities, roads, fences, and all that kind of stuff. So there's just so much that the government has under its control, and people are completely denied from that in terms of use in many ways. Mm-hmm. The government just literally sets this off and nobody's on it. So we have a big issue here with the government having all these resources and no privatization there because the government's just holding it. So if we're meaningfully going to get the government reduced down in size, scope, and power, you can't just think about the actual taxes being taken. We have to think about the actual size of the state and the holdings. Mm. And so I think that that is a ripe opportunity for people to be able to get restitution because if they can get privatization out of the land of federal holdings and some of those structures, we have a win-win situation. We have Meaningful privatization, where individuals are actually getting private property. Now there's a discrete owner, and that can be leveraged economically, you know, accordingly. And we have the government being able to be meaningfully reduced in the size, scope, and power at the same time. So that's something that I think really sticks out with my work. I know some others have different ideas in their incrementalisms, but mine is very privatization focused. I think privatization is the chief end of what a reduction in the size, scope, and power of the state should be about. Mm-hmm. And some people try to come up with different schemes of taxpayer ownership based on a collective and all this other nonsense. And I reject that because all it's doing is creating more conflict over scarce resources. So for me, the goal is always about how do we reduce the size and scope of the state power through privatization by getting people to actually own physical assets and land in their individual name And now they actually have something for themselves. And again, this is something that's long-term benefits because with the privatization comes the abundance of wealth from whatever you end up doing with that, whether you use it for productive ends, for Mm -hmm. farming, for building a home or for leasing it out or whatever it is. It's actually now entering these new properties into the marketplace where they can actually be used productively. So that's a, a unique focus I think I have in my book that not too many really 
I think, dive into the way I do. Yeah. What Just very particularly on this, you personally, where in the federal asset holding sell-off would you place national parks? And would you, this is kind of a silly question in some sense, but would you make sure that it's all sold at once or would you allow it to be subdivided, the national parks? I just don't want Yosemite to be subdivided. I'm being you know emotional about it, but like, how would you handle that kind of thing? Americans place a lot of value on those being entities in and of themselves. Right. So when it comes to the number of acres in my book, I don't really have a necessity that the government sells off all national parks kind of thing Mm. in there. Just that they're reducing their overall asset holdings to about 10% by the end. And maybe it'll be a little bit less with some other restitution issues in mind. So remember, we're starting at 640 million acres. It's pretty big. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. We're, we're starting at, it's pretty uh, sizable here. So so if all they owned were federal uh, <laughs> or national parks, and that's like literally all the land they own, we'd be okay. <laughs> right. So a big part of that really is what I would tell people is I'd say, if the government was getting it down to the point where they just have the necessary sites for, of course, their office buildings and military stuff and this or that, and then they have still some national parks maybe that they keep open to the public, especially some of the bigger ones, I don't think most people would really be seeing much of a difference overall because there's just so much land in the first place that the government holding 10% or 5% is still in the arena of 60-ish million acres. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not too worried about that being a problem, even with extra landing to be given out or parceled out for specific restitutions, other things that I talk about. But I, I just think that in that case, that's an easy way to make everybody happy. And I, mm. I get that a lot. I get a lot of people who say, yeah, but my parks. And you know, I kind of laugh at that because on one hand, it's like, I get it. I get the benefit of wanting to have a free open space where you yeah. can just camp and you just see nature. I said, but at the end of the day, there's nothing stopping other people from being in your spot either if it's open to the public, right? So it's not really a true sense of like, oh, it's like my park and I can do whatever I want with it. There's controls on it. The government sets hours sometimes and sometimes has fees for going in. And there's also the fact that if it's a commons, you don't have any meaningful ability to kick somebody else out. So if you don't like what someone else is doing or they're close to you, you know, you got no control over that. Either. Yeah. Yeah. So I get it. Parks are beautiful and people want to have that. And I think that that is an incentive that will definitely drive the direction of that where the government's still managing and maybe monetizing the parks better so they can actually run it. But I, I don't see it being too, too much a problem when all uh, of the acres are considered. You hinted at the federal property, also talking about restitution and justice, and that was actually the next thing I wanted to talk about. Policing and justice, in particular retributive justice, actually plays a role in one of your chapters here, which is that you don't think the government should be involved in retributive justice. Could you like outline a little bit, what is your idea of justice, and what do we do with all the hardened criminals? Sure, so... When it comes to the American paradigm right now, we have a very big retributive focus, which means the idea is to punish people and make them suffer, make them a penance for their crimes. And that is not, in my opinion, a really libertarian-oriented system. A libertarian-oriented system is one that is trying to seek justice by bringing restoration to the harmed party, right? The first goal should always be, hey, the victim, we got to make them whole. Right? That's the goal of libertarians is we don't want these property rights violations and we want people who are wrong to be made whole. So that shifts the nature of the whole justice system moving to a, I guess you could say, retributive 
format into a restorative and then rehabilitative. So what I mean there is that we're looking to make the victims whole and also, to the extent possible, help those who are offenders for reasons that are not really tied to just something that's beyond help and hope. Someone who has a problem because of upbringing and poverty and Mm -hmm. brokenness, that kind of thing, which is very common, of course, to begin with when it comes to situations. Are you saying that it's okay to see people as victims and that's why they do bad things? Yes, exactly. So there's definitely, (laughs) uh, there's definitely. I mean, it's real. I know a lot of people don't like it when predominantly on the left, it's like, oh, well, they're just a victim of their environment. And it's like, no, 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 hold on. You can say that that's true, but also say that they're responsible for their choices and hold them responsible, which is why I would align with you about the restorative justice piece. Exactly. It's bringing together both the assignment of guilt and need to make right for what was done wrong, whoever you know was stolen from or physically harmed, trying to make that right as best as possible, but also looking for an opportunity to help someone be able to not then have recidivism, that is, be a reoffender. And I think that's one of the biggest problems of the American justice system is that it's so punitive and so retributive focused that it really ends up harming people for the long term. And it becomes difficult for someone to reacclimate to a non-criminal life after being in prison because of being in just such that harsh environment and then getting connections with other people who are in gangs and things like that. Yeah. And so that's a little bit of what I bring to bear from my background in criminal justice and criminal defense. And my father also had a prison ministry. So I've had a lot of knowledge about some of the things that can go on in prisons yeah, from his yeah. work. So I think that the paradigm shift there is really trying to look at restoring victims and rehabilitation. But I do leave in there as well that if there is reason that someone should not have that opportunity, and there's, I think there's definitely cases for that, which is the highest level of offenses we're talking about, intentional first-degree murder situations, we're talking about serial rapists, child molesters, those kinds of things where it's the harm is so egregious that no meaningful restitution rehabilitation is there. That's where I think that something along the lines of a banishment or death penalty possibility would come into play. And I have some yeah. you know, specific factors about that as well. Sure. But yeah, I think that it's the overwhelming majority of cases and situations here are not dealing with that. You know, most of these situations are going to be small things with theft or a fight or something like that. It's not hundreds of thousands of murders every year kind of thing. <laughs> so. What about the prisons? I think you, you mentioned that we should privatize prisons. So I'm against privatization of prisons because I don't think prison, as defined as being incarcerated for over a year, is ethical. And I actually write about that specifically in my book, talking about how a justice that would be in the restitution rehabilitation would limit incarceration periods to about a year. And the reason mm, why is okay. that if someone, you know, is too much of a threat to be let out in the first place, then okay, then what was the point of prison for whatever, you know, going there for 5, 10, 15 years or something like that, right? You're just subsidizing someone who's going to eventually just be violent and come out and harm people by doing that. So again, the goal there should just simply be make the period as short as practicable to help somebody get back on their feet and avoid a criminal life forward. But this idea of, oh, we're just going to keep murderers and serial rapists and have everybody pay for their life millions of dollars up the entire life just to subsist, to me, is a little bit silly. And I think that the other issue that sometimes people come up with is like, well, I don't want the government to murder them because they're scared of the death penalty thing. So that I just respond, yes, but the government literally is giving someone a death sentence in that lifetime in prison. They're shortening their life because of the prison conditions and they're choosing where they're going to die, you know, locked up. 
So they're mm. getting torture plus death. And very often people also get murdered in prison. It's, if you're there for much longer, much higher probability yeah. that you get murdered. And suicide's also rampant and beatings and rape. So these are all things that are a norm within this very dysfunctional organization that is prison. So I never thought about the fact that technically speaking, they are giving a death sentence. It's just for a lot of criminals, it's just not like death penalty. <laughs> right. The death is not immediate, but they're going to die in prison and it's going to be an earlier death because of the nature of prison conditions. It's shortening your life yeah. being in <laughs> a very confined area with low sunlight and the worst nutrition you can imagine, soy burgers and all that stuff. And constantly being stressed, wondering if someone's going to shiv you or, or beat you with batteries in a sock, that kind of thing. It, it's really not very fun. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. there's nothing glamorous about prisons and except for the ones that, you know, are the really high level ones, right? You're like white collar criminal where they send Jeffrey Epstein, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so the original one in Florida, you know. Yeah. Not the second one where they murked him, but. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com, you click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50, and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. So this conversation happened because I think it was on Twitter. It might have been Facebook. We got to chatting about immigration and how you have a solution for the arguments about how libertarians argue about closed borders, open borders, private borders, all of that. So where does your vision for libertarian future involve immigrants and I guess that plays into citizenship as well. Sure. So, yeah, the borders <laughs> debate is always funny to me because people will debate it so they're blue in the face and the border policy is still the same at the end of the tweet, you know? <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It, it just, it's not really doing anything to change policy. So the question then is just, okay, how are we changing minds, right? What's actually being done to change people's minds and how is that applied to libertarian ethics and theory in the real world? So, the first thing you got to say with borders is how they're, I guess you could say, formed and what defines them. So people sometimes will confuse borders as being private property lines or boundaries. It's not the case, right? The 
borders and the geopolitical context are talking about governments and their claim that they own all the land on an imaginary line on a map. And they say that they have the right to choose who gets to come in or out and they get to control the private property owners who are living on that border. And they'll use eminent domain sometimes to take that from people to construct things, you know, like the border wall in Texas and so on and so forth. So it's not really in and of itself an ethical thing, right? Borders philosophically in terms of government action are not ethical at all from the voluntarist, small L libertarian perspective. But that said, there are a number of issues that come up with borders that make it that you can't just go radically one way or another without it having some serious consequences. And so even though we know philosophically the state claim is unethical, getting toward freedom in trade and travel takes careful planning and steps to not have another foreign government do some serious damage. And the reason why this is such a concern is because even if you can get these kinds of policies in the US, you don't control the rest of the world. And so there's other governments around the world that are always trying to test the safety of the American system of militarism and the government. They are doing things like cyber attacks or running jets along the coast, getting as close as they can. They try to send in spies. I mean, the U.S. government does this too. This is not like a weird thing. Like, yeah, the U.S. sends in CIA spies and undercover black ops. So this is happening all the time. And if you have a completely, you could say, open border thing, there's absolutely no check whatsoever, you're going to have that opportunity for foreign government agents to come in clandestinely, whether it's they're sending 10 people at different ports throughout the year at different times to organize something, or they're just plotting basically to try to take over the government apparatus. So that's like a real concern, and it exists. This is not hypothetical, theoretical. I mean, you can look at Eric Swalwell or Chinese who leak secrets back to the CCP. It's a normal thing that these governments play in these espionage and regime toppling games. So we have to consider those factors. We also have to consider from the other side too that when the government has really strong border policies that they use it to oppress people, right? They will just like the Soviet Union use it to keep people in or North Korea to keep people in. They use it to erode the rights of individuals like in the US how the border policy has enabled this zone, a hundred mile zone out from any coastline where there's basically no constitutional rights by the government standard. So 66% of Americans effectively have their rights completely erased by the border patrol. And in some places, even like the 11th Circuit, they don't even need reasonable suspicion to search your electronics. They can just take it and data dump it and suck all your information off mm. your computer and you got no recourse. So we have some serious <laughs> problems with government on both sides of this spectrum. So what I talk about in terms of changing things has to come from this kind of incrementalism that allows people to have freedom in trade and travel at a greater level where we move toward privatization and we remove the incentives for welfareism through birthright citizenship. So what I suggest in incrementalism, first and foremost, is ending the birthright citizenship. I think that that was a huge mistake, this idea that, oh, you're just born here now. Okay, you're a part of the government. The government gets to claim ownership over you. And, oh, you get to vote too, but it's basically the government claiming that you're owned by the government. So I think that that needs to be gotten rid of. It should only be elected into. I think that the solution to people coming over otherwise who 
don't want to be citizens that maybe want to work or travel or visit, I think the solution there is to simply have people have that freedom, but to have higher penalties when it comes to criminal or civil harms. So that way, if someone, you know, is over here and they are not a citizen, but they go and they steal from a store, right? Maybe or they do a hit and run. Those people are going to have higher fines for that situation and they could potentially be deported if they don't pay those, right? So again, what that's doing is it's saying, hey, you're free to be here. But again, if you're not going to become a citizen and then you're committing violations of property rights against people here, well, now there is a justification for removing that person. And I think that that's a big part of this is connecting that nexus of someone actually doing harm toward others before it becoming something where there might be a deportation situation. And then on top of that, I suggest that the citizenship program should be changed to a financially based one where people pay to become citizens with a time-based schedule. It's a little complicated. I won't get into all the deals, but basically it incentivizes people to do it when they're younger and earlier. And then there's higher costs as you get older. And the idea there is that process would help fund investigations into potential nefarious activity, whether it's human trafficking or attacks by foreign governments and so on and so forth. So it's this idea of how we can open up the U.S. to more trade and travel, people being able to be free to do that without all these types of restrictions on them, but then to be responsible for the harms that they do. And that could also lead to them being deported as a punishment if they actually do harms to others while here. Mm. I think that this kind of makes sense for a lot of different people at the end of the day, because even people who are, who at least from what I've seen, might be a little bit more on the open border side. I've noticed a lot of them, when you push comes to shove and you talk to them like, oh, okay, so like anybody can come in with a disease, right? Like if they're, it's just open borders, right? So you could have a very contagious disease and you just, you know, you could walk in and spread it around, right? And they're like, well, no, no, right? So these people will quickly kind of backtrack from their position if you start to put the what if situations there. And I think ultimately everybody starts to get queasy about going one way too hard or the other, whether it comes to the close of the open thing, because again, of all the potential problems. So the libertarian solution is to move toward privatization, move away from government automatically creating tax cattle or people by citizenships, move away from harming people who have not harmed anybody who are just here being peaceful, and then enabling people here and otherwise to trade or travel, you know, US out and otherwise without the government turning everybody into criminals and making it a police state Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I can imagine, and I kind of brought this up a little earlier on, I can imagine that there are people who are worried that using the state or using the mechanisms of the state by, well, we're going to have the state abolish this, or we're not going to privatize prisons or all of that is actually, is that really leading to a libertarian future? Because there's a lot of people out there to be like, well, we don't need the state. If it's voluntary, there's no state. I mean, obviously, we'd have a whole other podcast conversation about that. But what do you say to those people who are, I guess you could call them libertarian purists? I don't mean that pejoratively, but that's often how they're described. Yeah, I mean, I am a libertarian purist. So my ideal with everything is to have statelessness as the end goal. So what I present here is actually more so the question of how do we get there, right? Because a big part of getting to that point requires some bits of privatization and some bits of changes that people can actually create the solutions to state problems. And I would say like if anyone were to tell you, oh yeah, the government could just magically disappear like as if the rapture came, but it was only the wicked, so it's government workers, and they're all gone, 
off the planet that everything's just going to be fine and dandy. I mean, and that'd be kind of silly because you'd have all these nuclear weapons that are just sitting there. You have all these biological agents that are just sitting there. You'd have all these different types of, I guess you could say, state-controlled aspects of society right now, whether it's as simple as the water treatment or this or that, that there would be problems, right? People maintaining systems that are physical, electric grids and all this other stuff, there would be problems because all of a sudden you are losing that knowledge and there hasn't been privatization as these dangerous instruments or things that are being maintained. So it would be very much so chaos, obviously, in that situation. So this proposition that I have is about avoiding that chaos by unifying people in a privatization of the state and state functions over time so that we can finally outmode the state. And that's really what I think is the most necessary thing is that if we're to actually meaningfully reject statism, we have to have the opportunity for people to come up with solutions that makes people actually want to support that voluntarily, right? The best way to have that is to actually let those flourish and let people be able to choose them. No different way than saying the government was mandating hot dogs and no, we want to force hamburgers. Well, you know, you, you have to let people choose hamburgers voluntarily and that requires opening up the market. And that's what I ultimately see with this vision is that it actually enables people to really meaningfully choose where the resources are going to the point where they actually can opt out of the state. And I think that's the key is that if people are able to opt out of the state and say, okay, I could choose a state or I can find a better solution, you're already winning because you're already getting to the point where people are able to say, oh, okay, I can actually have a competition to the United States Postal Mail Service, or I could maybe get a private arbitration agency instead of the government for this civil issue. Or, oh, actually now there's a free market in fire services, and oh, I could support the local volunteers, or I could you know, get a private fire service through insurance, right? You need the opportunity for people to come in the market and to compete with the government. And that's kind of where I'm putting this vision at is this is the way to get to the competition. And the competition is what lets people to truly ethically and without the chaos, outmode the state. Where can people find your book, Jack? They can find it on Amazon. So I have it published and printed through Amazon. So both books are there. You can just type on in Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntary is my first book. And this latest book, A Vision for a Libertarian Future. There's links to it also on my website, Jack V. Lloyd. That's L-L-O-I-D. Jack V as in voluntarist. JackVLloyd.com. And we can Google it to just throw it in there. It'll come on up right away. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you joining me. And next time you write a book, we'll chat again. Or maybe even before then, maybe we'll have another reason to chat. But thanks for joining us for this episode, Jack. Oh, it was my pleasure. And yes, there is a third book to this trilogy that might be coming out January 2024. I'm thinking that's when it'll be. Excellent. Perfect timing. (laughs) Thanks, Doug. (laughs) Yep. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.